0: Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast and welcome to our new mini series on medicine and the law. JP and I are excited to bring you this mini series. In it, we're going to cover in multiple episodes the many interesting, often confrontational, and necessary ways that neurosurgeons and doctors in general relate to lawyers. I think you'll find this mini series to be exciting and informative. And as usual, just like our coronavirus and hell week episodes, this will be released on a weekly basis in conjunction with our regular episodes.
1: Hi everybody, JP here with the usual disclaimers. The opinions expressed on the neurosurgery podcast belong to the people expressing them and don't represent those of any institution or professional organization. Further, the topics discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice nor the practice of medicine. And finally in particular, for our guests of that profession, the subjects discussed on this podcast do not constitute legal advice or the practice of law. But don't hold that against us, folks. Advice isn't free.
0: Now, let's get started. Great. Welcome to the Surgery Podcast, and welcome to another episode in our mini-series on medicine and the law. As you know, doctors and lawyers and the law intersect commonly. And we are very delighted today to be joined by Dominique Venitsinopoulos. Dominique is actually married to a neurosurgeon, and that's how we know her. But she is an expert in uh, all manner of what we'll call uh, the disability social security world. So, Dominique, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So, by way of introduction, I think uh, maybe for the younger listeners, they don't really understand yet how important this sector of law and Uh, sort of uh, civilization is to what we do. So by definition, the diseases we deal with, whether it be by natural history or accident or surgical intervention, often leave patients with some level of impairment. And in the civilized world, that is often managed in terms of a, a measure of disability or compensation for the inability to procure income, et cetera, et cetera. And the law can be quite complex in this regard. And for that reason, lawyers can specialize in that. And so, Dominique, why don't you start out by giving uh, neurosurgeons who aren't familiar with this some, some, somewhat of a primer on what it is you really do uh, when you work with doctors?
2: Sure. So we actually, um, you know, I work for a firm that specializes in social security disability, as you said. And basically what that means is we see patients who, you know, have either suffered some kind of previous injury or have some medical condition and can no longer work because of that issue. Um, It significantly limits their ability to do basic work activities. And for that reason, they come to us and we help them get their benefits through the government. Um, And I work with doctors at various levels uh, of this process. You know, we work with our treating physicians uh, at the beginning stages where we have them fill out statements, forms, uh, write opinion letters on their functional abilities. We deal with doctors um, at the hearing level too. Uh, In many cases, we have medical experts who have reviewed their file and who are now testifying and giving a medical opinion on what they feel this individual can and cannot do as a result of the medical condition or injury. Um and also, you know, sometimes I actually get to work with their treating physicians directly, uh, preparing them for the actual hearing to give testimony.
1: Wow, that's um obviously a very important part for these patients trying to get back on their feet, both financially as well as medically after these kinds of injuries or or events in their lives. Now, I think in these in this conversation today, I'm gonna be a, a good foil to the two of you because I'm so early in my career, I'm just trying to learn the medicine of it all. And so a lot of these more complex, higher level things with the finance and the legal side of things are well beyond me. But I can certainly think about the patient's perspective going through this process. So, Dominique, I'm curious, when, when these patients have their accidents and, and experience their injuries, how do they find someone like you? Does your firm reach out and pursue these patients after an injury or in hospitals or in healthcare networks, is there some kind of referral network for them to find you so they can get the help that they need?
2: Well, that's a very good question, JP. Um, actually, we do have a lot of attorneys who refer us their clients. So these are attorneys who have helped uh, you know, this individual at, you know, with a workers' compensation case and that was settled. And then they go on and refer them to us to get them their more permanent disability benefits. Um, you know, we also just have a really good reputation, and you know, other clients refer their friends or family members or people that they know who who need their disability benefits. So, you know, it, it's it, it, that's how it works, basically.
0: And Dominique, I mean, I've had some experience with this, but I'm by no means an expert. Give us some concept, you know, just for folks who don't understand, what is really at stake financially? Like, what are we really talking about in terms of lost years of wages over how many years, et cetera, et cetera? What what does that look like? And I know it varies case to case.
2: Right. So this is why it's so important to file for disability as soon as you know uh, that, you know, the condition is, is, is resulting in your inability to work. The moment you file, that kind of sets uh, the tone it starts the clock for uh, compensation. These uh, disability cases can take uh, you know up to two years to get to a hearing level. Uh, it's a very long process, and the good thing is once you file, you preserve that filing date, and when you have a hearing a year and a half, maybe two years later, and you win, you know there's retroactive money involved going back to the date of filing. So that's why it's so important to file as soon as possible. And for us, you know how we lawyers make our money off these cases, it's obviously uh, contingency. So we don't get paid if we don't win the case. We only get paid if we win the case, and we make up to twenty five percent of the back pay at stake. So that's how we get our our you know end of the deal.
1: Wow. I mean, I've had some interactions with legal processes so far and things, you know, going to court. Um, But two years seems like a long time to wait for that hearing. One to two years, I I guess. What what exactly are the steps intervening between that filing date and getting to the hearing itself? What kinds of things are people going through?
2: So there's a lot of paperwork involved, obviously. And, you know, every time you deal with a government, things just take a very long time. So, you know, there's a lot of people doing this, they're backlogged, they're short staffed. And so it takes a long time, but there's a lot of administrative stuff that goes into it prior to the hearing. We have our um, clients, oftentimes they are, uh, sent to doctors, uh, independent doctors, doctors who have no relationship with, with these clients who, who conduct a, an independent evaluation of their mental or physical status. And they kind of, uh, you know, report back to social security, their findings. Uh, We also get the report. Um, It gives us a good sense of where the case is kind of going because a lot of weight is given to these doctors, these examining physicians uh, and their, you know, independent review. so, so so, they're sent to consultative examinations, that's what that's called. Um, and leading up to the hearing, uh, there's a lot of preparation involved. I know in the months before the hearing, I'm often interacting with their doctors either directly or indirectly. Um, a lot of the times, uh, you know, and this, you see this mostly in, in mental health uh, cases where the individual suffers from significant depression, anxiety, schizophrenia. Um, a lot of their psychologists or psychiatrists are actually willing to testify for them, which is really nice because it makes the case that much stronger when you have the treating physician willing to take the time out of their very busy day and say a few words to the judge about why they feel. Uh, their patient is unable to to sustain any kind of competitive employment. So, um, you know, I often have conversations with these doctors on the phone. I kind of prepare them for how it's going to go. And so, you know, and of course, preparation with our clients as well.
0: So, Dominique, from what I gather, then, uh, a neurosurgeon, right, because most of the listeners are neurosurgeons or neurosurgeons in training, can intersect with you in, in probably at least two likely ways. The one would be that you are the doctor for the patient, you're a treating physician, right? And you you are maybe helping or you're involved with the patient's care. And then your notes and your documentation as that treating physician are relevant, right? And the second, right. okay, so the second would be when you're actually the doctor for hire, right? And I I don't know what you call those guys. What do you call the guys who are hired to do these uh, IM, IMEs? Um,
2: yes, just medical experts.
0: Medical experts, yeah. So talk to us about how surgeons or neurosurgeons intersect in these two manners? In other words, either as the doctor already, or as someone employed or contracted with your firm or the government to try to give an independent assessment.
2: Okay. So, um, you know, just to talk about the first part of your question, the medical records are super important. This is why, you know, it's very important for our clients within those two years leading up to the hearing to continue their treatment. I, I cannot stress that enough. Your case is only as good as your medical records and the medical opinions within within the file. So, um, you know, they go to their, their treating physicians, you know, whether it's their PCP or, you know, their neurosurgeon, um, and, and they get the, and then we request the records then to answer the second part of your question, um, you know, depending on what the case is. So let's say we have a disorder of the spine case, uh, you know, sometimes we are lucky enough to get a specialist, uh, medical expert, social security handles all this, by the way, uh, they, you know, select their own medical experts. These people are supposed to be independent physicians. Yes, they get paid by Social Security to give their medical opinions and to review the file, but they are supposed to be neutral parties. They're simply there to educate the judge, not advocate. Um, So, uh, you know, sometimes we're very lucky to get a neurosurgeon. Uh, Other times, you know, we'll just get, you know, a medical internist who has, you know, general knowledge on, on... Everything that's going on, um, and my role is to listen to what this medical expert has to say, this specialist. And you know, obviously, if they say something that's good for the case, I'm going to leave it, and I'm going to take it and run with it. Um, if if they say something that's questionable, something that makes the judge. Feel that you know while the individual maybe cannot do their previous line of work, perhaps there's other less physical type of work that this person can get into. Then I have to go into sort of a cross examination of this medical expert um, and kind of uh, point to certain records that maybe discredit something that they're saying. You know, oftentimes these cases are so voluminous, so many medical files and and notes that oftentimes a lot of things are missed, you know, even by these medical experts who are paid to do this, uh, they maybe they miss something. And then, you know, it's my job to really know the file and and point to an exhibit where I can say, uh, you know, but did you see the physical exam on such and such date? Did you see that this person had an abnormal gait, that they were limping, that they were using a cane? How how can you say that this person can be on their feet for six hours out of eight every day doing a job? So that's really my role.
1: That's very interesting. And in fact, it, it leads me right to something I wanted to ask you about. You know, I'm looking at the social security's Um, list of their definitions of disability. And the the last question on that list is, can you do any other type of work, which you kind of just touched on right there. But what I wanted to ask you about, which I think dovetails nicely with this, is when you were talking about the importance of documentation during that interval period between filing and your hearing date, is all documentation equal? Um, For many cases, you know, if we want to take the example of a spine patient relevant to neurosurgeons, The surgeon will see their patient maybe one to three times after surgery, and then frequently that follow-up will fall off, and the patient will go back to seeing their primary care doctors, physical therapists, physiatrists, or PMRs as we call them uh, in the States. Um, But when you take this case to court and you have these uh, records and, and the documentation of various experts in various fields... Does the commentary of one specialist versus another or a generalist like a primary care doctor versus a PMR doctor versus a spine surgeon carry any different weight when commenting on, for the example you used, how long someone could stand up on the job?
2: Sure, and so um, this is why opinions are great to have. It's great to have a doctor that's willing to write a great letter for you, but if you don't have the medical evidence to support that opinion, You know, unfortunately, we can't give it very much weight, even if it comes from a neurosurgeon or, or, you know, a doctor that you've seen. So you need the medical evidence to support the opinion. Um, And, you know, with neurosurgeons, I understand that, you know, you don't go to them every month. It's not like a PCP. They don't have that kind of relationship. You really just go in, you have the surgery, you follow up a little bit after that, and then you kind of drop off, as you said, JP. Um, For the neurosurgeons, the notes that are important are the... um, the notes leading up to the surgery you know when the decision is made that this person is a surgical candidate you know after all conservative measures have been done physical therapy injections maybe to the spine that hasn't worked out and they say this person is in need of surgery those notes are very important because right there it highlights how severe the condition is if you need back surgery for it um and then after the surgery you know, it's interesting. We have a lot of our clients who, you know, are always saying, oh, the surgery didn't work. Oh, the surgery made my back pain even worse. Now I have this problem. So obviously, you know, you're never really going to find that in a neurosurgeon's notes that, you know, this person's now complaining of even worse pain. You see that in notes from their, you know, PCP when they go visit with them and they're complaining of more pain. So you can kind of use those notes to say, listen, this person had a severe disorder of the spine, whatever it was, herniated discs, uh, degenerative disc disease. Uh, They had surgery, it was severe. And, you know, the surgery, while it helped a little bit, it didn't completely alleviate the problem and the person is still, you know, in pain or dependent on a cane or whatever. So that's how that works. Interesting. Yeah, and I I do want to touch on, um, you know, doctors who, who take the stand in many cases, and not just uh, disability cases, but we uh, social security disability cases, but you see this a lot in workers' compensation cases, or even medical malpractice cases. There's a lot of doctors who take the stand, and a lot of them are very anxious about doing this. And it's interesting for me, because doctors have such stressful jobs in and of themselves. I mean, one small move you know, for surgeons, and you can significantly impair someone, but you know, taking the stand for them is so nerve wracking. And I think a lot of it has to do with not being uh, prepared by the attorney about what to say and how to say it and and how the process goes.
0: Yeah, Dominique, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, how do we screw it up? Like I I think maybe uh, it's happened to me sometimes, but there must be some patterns of behavior where particularly neurosurgeons just aren't good at this part of the world, right? And and give some examples of how, you know, someone could screw things up for a case or, you know, unintentionally, of course, right? I mean, it's just, we're, right. we're not, that's not what we do every day, right?
2: Exactly. Well, I would say this, I mean, these are the things to consider to do it properly and to do it right. Um, as a physician, you know, neurosurgeon, whatever you are, stick to what you know, you know, as a witness, you cannot control the questions that you will be asked, but you can control your responses. So don't guess or speculate. If you're unsure of an answer that the lawyer is asking you on the stand, just say so, you know, testifying. It's not a multiple choice test. Another thing I would advise is, you know, remember your role there in the hearing, you know, educate, do not advocate. The purpose of testifying is to convey knowledge uh, to those who do not have it. Uh, judges, you know, essentially the jury too. Everyone's a lay person. We don't know very much about these medical conditions. And a lot of these medical terms are beyond the scope of our knowledge. So, you know, just when you're presenting the the evidence just educate and, and give your testimony, and that will give your testimony greater credibility and professionalism. And another thing is just to lead off of that, remember your audience. Um, you know, just imagine as if you were speaking to a bunch of sixth graders, really, when you're testifying, because it helps focus you um, and it helps focus the, the jury and the judge and, you know, who have very little attention span. So you really want to break it down and make it easy to understand. And really, the last thing I would say is just answer the question directly and briefly. Um, You know, a short, straightforward answer is always better than, you know, long-winded answers.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. Um, You know, before we wrap up today, there is another aspect I wanted to touch on because I feel like, logically, we've been focusing on spine patients and back pain patients because I would imagine that the majority of your intersection with neurosurgery is in that field especially in terms of disability and and you know being off work but obviously neurosurgeons do cranial neurosurgery as well and when i take care of these patients in the hospital and they've undergone a resection of a tumor even you know something dr wang you know we, we always talk about well in front in the frontal lobes where you know there's nothing really that you can hurt but people may have subtle personality changes People may have subtle changes in executive function, whatever that really means, that vague term. So, Dominique, in your experience, have you interacted with or have your colleagues interacted with patients who have undergone cranial surgery and are trying to get back in the workforce and maybe they don't have a limit to how long they can stand up, maybe they move around okay, but there's some cognitive slowing or cognitive deficit that may be affecting the work they did previously?
2: Yes, we do see these types of patients, um, and and really uh, the angle there with their case is is to show that you know there is a cognitive impairment after you know the surgery that maybe uh, their memory is affected or their understanding of even simple information is affected, and uh, you know this is why neuropsychological testing is also very important for these patients, uh. They're often sent to these kinds of tests, either by our firm or by the Social Security Administration uh, to do a more independent review of how their executive functioning is affected. Um, and so it's interesting you mention that because those are the cases that are not so obvious. You know, um, wh- when you have the client there in front of the judge and 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 the judge is asking them some questions about their conditions. It's not always obvious that that they're cognitively affected. You know, uh, to really notice it, you have to spend some time with someone. So that's why the exams are so important, and the opinion statements are so important as well. But you know, interestingly, I would say that seventy percent of all the cases that I take have some kind of disorder of the spine issue. It is so common. So many people are unable to work or are alleging that they're unable to work because of some sort of back issue. And it's just incredible uh, to see.
0: Yeah, it is uh, well known that over two thirds of all disability claims are related to the spine, uh, lending to, of course, the importance of spine in the world of not just neurosurgery, but... um, but, but healthcare. And I, I, I heard an interesting statistic that the number one cause of disability, and I you have to be careful in definitions, disability in sub-Saharan Africa is still spine disease. And, and it's just, it seems like a universal condition of, of the human state, whether it's walking, uh, uh in a bipedal upright posture or whatever. But I think you're right, uh, Dominique, it, it, you know, it's going to keep you in business for a while, right?
2: Definitely. Definitely. I mean, spine Cases are not going anywhere. They are so common. We see them all the time. And and they're very debilitating, you know, back pain is is a big deal for these people. And, you know, sometimes there's there's not much even that their neurosurgeons can do. And then they're just referred to more maintenance care, their pain management. So uh, it's a big deal and, and pain definitely is a a big thing for not being able to work.
1: Well, Dominique, I I think from the perspective of the surgeons, you know, interacting with these patients and trying to take care of them, we always talk about treating the patient, not the imaging or treating the patient, not the disease. And I think oftentimes we can get a bit of tunnel vision and think about the patient around their hospitalization, through their clinic, and then not, not think about them in their role in their community, their role in society, which obviously includes their ability to work and generate income, or if that's taken from them their ability to still support their family. So I, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, educating me certainly, who's very ignorant in, in these fields, but hopefully some of our listeners who do interact with you and your colleagues and help comment uh, with these patients and educate, as you say, when, when they finally make the trial. So we really appreciate your time and your expertise today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So, JP, I just had a great experience. Uh, Last Wednesday, Alan Levy, Timur Yurikov, and I did a fantastic Zoom webinar. It was sponsored by Broadwater, which uh, is a fantastic educational company because nobody can travel now. We talked about ultra-MIS surgery. It was the third in a series of webinars about the pearls of uh, spine surgery as an art form. Uh, I think the first was with Larry Lenke. The second was with Russ Knuckles. And we have one coming up. Next weekend, next week, I should say, on a Wednesday, which is right before our podcast release on August twelfth, with our good friend JP Mobasser, uh, and JP has already been a guest on our podcast. So, JP, uh, you know, I think I think this would be a great opportunity for folks who are bored on a Wednesday night to tune in and learn a little bit about MIS surgery.
1: Well, of course, you know, I tune into as many of these webinars as I can, whether I'm at home. Uh, doing some work with it running in the background, or even if I'm on call in the hospital, uh, we oftentimes in our workroom or call room will open a laptop and leave these things running. So I think not just for the established practicing surgeons around the country and around the world who can't attend the normal meetings this year, but certainly for people who are in training and trying to get their hands and wrap their mind around these techniques, um, all of these online webinars this year have been such a resource for, for our education and our continuing exposure to the great names and the great techniques in the field. So listeners, go to broadwater.com. Spelled out, that's broad-water.com. Right at the top, there's an easy link that says online CME, and that's going to get you to these webinars that we're talking about, including coming up next Wednesday, August 12th, with Dr. J.P. Mabasser. Again, that's broad-water.com. Right at the top, it says online CME. Couldn't be easier to find it. So tune in on Wednesday.